Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. We're excited to welcome you to this episode and happy Halloween. Since we're trying to keep these episodes to 30 minutes, but we had so much to talk about, there's so much material for this topic. We are releasing this episode in two different parts. So part one is what you'll listen to today. And then in two weeks, you can catch the rest of this conversation. You know, Halloween is one of my favorite times of year, um, in part because everyone is watching scary movies. What I find really fun about scary movies and horror movies and the whole genre is that plays a really interesting role in revealing our cultural fears and cultural phenomenons and what's going on at the time that a piece of media is produced. And I actually wrote an article about this for my school paper a couple of years back because it's just something that I find really super interesting. I remember when you were writing that article and you said that the topic was queer coding and horror movies. And I was like, what is queer coding? So because lots of people might have that question. Do you want to go ahead and give us a definition? Yeah. So queer coding is essentially when um, aspects of queer identities or aspects that are associated with queer identities, whether that's um, for real cultural reasons or more just about stereotypes, are uh, layered over a character or a set of circumstances in order to tell the audience that we're not saying it explicitly, but this character is gay. So why does this topic, queer coding, fit so well with horror movies? Why is this a particular area of interest? Yeah, so... What I was saying before about how horror movies really reflect our cultural fears and what we're thinking about at a time, at a given time, um, a lot of times what that means is that we're scared of people who aren't like us or people who seem almost just like us, but there's something just a little bit off. I mean, that's the fear behind, you know, slasher movies where it turns out, oh, the real killer was, you know, my best friend all along. Um, because it's, it's someone hiding amongst us who looks almost like us, but there's there's something about them that's that's not the same and is just terrifying. And um, similarly, um, so many monster movies also deal with the fear of something that is very other, that is coming from somewhere completely alien to us. And so there's a lot of different ways that it can manifest. But overall, so much of horror is just dealing with our fear of things that aren't like us. So the movies we we watched for this episode date back to the early 30s. And most of the movies we watched were made during something called the Hayes Act which was in effect from 1934 to 1968. Sienna, do you want to elaborate on what that was? Yeah, so the Hayes Act was basically this set of guidelines that the film industry sort of took upon itself that was basically saying, you know, we can't have any sexual content or anything, you know, too graphic or violent in our movies and was mainly focused on, you know, profanity, nudity, Um, and anything to do with um, sexual orientation. So that being in effect, the movie industry having to play kind of by these roles um, led to 
a lot of the queer expression in movies during that time, probably being in horror movies, right? Because it was a way of... It was a way of saying that if we're going to have a queer-coded character, they're either going to die horribly or be the villain or both. (laughs) Reflecting a lot of the views of the time. So start us out with Dracula. So in Dracula, um, what basically happens at the beginning is this dude, Renfield, uh, goes to Dracula's, Dracula's castle and meets Dracula. And then there's the scene where, where it's, it's just, I don't know, it was meant to have like, ooh, spooky, scary monster tension. But what comes across to me as a modern viewer ended up being a lot more like, sexual tension i guess um as dracula is like can i offer you some wine and renfield's like yeah are you gonna have anything to drink and dracula's like i never drink wine um and you know ultimately renfield ends up becoming dracula's thrall which means that he's basically under dracula's control and so follows Dracula around, kind of does his dirty work for him, and ultimately ends up getting put in an asylum where he, like, wants to eat flies and stuff. So the sort of queer messaging in this movie is explain that a little bit from your perspective. So very consistently um the notion of vampires, at least in in modern culture, has been one that sort of implies a sexual nature when it comes to a vampire drinking the blood of their victims. And we see that more in Dracula's Daughter, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then a whole lot more in some of the vampire movies made in um, the 60s through the 90s. Um, but that's just a pretty consistent cultural idea. Um, and there are kind of a lot of theories as to why that exists. Um, more recently, obviously, there is a clear connection between um, drinking blood and the AIDS epidemic. But back when this movie was made, it was a lot more implying a level of seductiveness that came along with vampires. You know, they're known for having um the power to sort of mind control their victims so another example of this would be uh carmilla which that came out in 1872 and that was actually released before bram stoker's dracula but that one is also very very well known as being heavily queer coded um because again you've got this level of seductiveness where you've got this vampire who is um sort of mysteriously compelling you towards them um, and you're sort of drawn to them and yet simultaneously horrified by them. And so we see that same dynamic play out between Dracula and Renfield at the beginning of uh, the 1931 Dracula movie. So do you think that mind control element is like reflects a societal fear that gay men are predators and they'll somehow like suck people in this fear that if you're around people who are gay, you'll become gay. So interestingly, it's not just gay men in this case. It's it's um, men and women are very consistently 
queer coded in Dracula in um, vampire media. Um, but I do think that's it. Yeah, it's the notion of um, you'll be you'll be drawn in by this predatory force against your will, um, which I think is also a way of um, kind of deflecting blame of being like, well, I didn't want to be gay but I was seduced into being gay. I didn't, you know, if we're, if we're going along with the vampire metaphor, I didn't want to do all of these horrible things under the thrall of the vampire, but I was forced to by their seduction and their mind control. Hmm. Okay. So then Dracula's daughter. Dracula's daughter is wild. It's, it's just so very clearly messaging queerness and it's an interesting one because it's not entirely clear what the purpose of that messaging of queerness is. If I had to guess, I would say it's leaning more towards the idea that queerness is an abomination. Um, but of course, we also ultimately see that Dracula's daughter is not able to escape her nature. So what the film essentially does is it follows Dracula's daughter, who desperately does not want to be a vampire. And we see her um, kind of alternating between uh, stalking the ladies of London, um, including this really just absolutely fascinating scene where basically she lures this woman in by telling her that she's an artist and she would like to draw her topless <laughs> and then drinking her blood, <laughs> um, which is just wild. And then, and then alternating that kind of scene with um, her trying to come up with ways of escaping her vampirism. So the one that sticks most in my mind is um, a scene where she is asking a doctor or a doctor is providing the solution of using electroshock therapy to essentially to cure her of her vampirism, um, which of course, people familiar with queer history will know that electroshock therapy was a pretty common form of conversion therapy relatively recently, actually. Wow. Yikes. <laughs> um, so the other 1930s movie that we watched, because I had seen it on a list that you sent me of movies that were supposedly in some way queer, was Bride of Frankenstein which was made in 1935. And I told you after I watched it, I didn't see the gay. So I know you said you think you might have. So take it away. Yeah. So I watched this one yesterday. Um, and to be honest, I watched it while I was in a lab doing work. So I wasn't paying like the closest of attention. But what I did notice it wasn't necessarily that particular characters were clearly queer coded, but there was a very clear message throughout the film of um, you have you have regular society. So you have um, Frankenstein's cousin wife lady. Is she actually his cousin in the movies? I'm not sure. But in the book, she's like I'm his cousin, sure. um, which is a different issue. Very pure and good and normal yes because <laughs> it's heterosexual um, right. as long fine. as it's heterosexual incest we're good um and so at any rate you've got her 
you've got kind of the the townsfolk um, on the one side, and you've got on the other side Dr. Pretorius, who used to be Frankenstein's mentor um, and now wants to work with him to further their scientific work on creating life. And of course, you've got the creature, and for about 30 seconds, the creature's bride until she gets obliterated. And then in the middle, you have Frankenstein. And he's kind of getting pulled back and forth throughout the whole movie. At first, when Dr. Pretorius comes to him, he's like, no, 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 I'm not interested. But then Dr. Pretorius shows him his work and he's like, oh, actually, I'm intrigued. Um, And then he's like, no, 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 never mind. I'm going away with my wife. And then Dr. Pretorius basically uses the creature to threaten him into working for working with slash for him um, to create the creature a bride. So you've got these two opposing forces and you've got Victor in the middle. Victor is the name in the book. I think they changed his name in the movie. Um, it was Henry but, in the movie. Okay. Henry, Henry in the movie. We'll try to use Which that. Which was the friend that I thought yeah, he was in love with. I was with so in the novel, confused. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, wait, Henry, I thought Henry died. Uh-huh. Um, I don't even know if the friend existed in the original Frankenstein movie either. But at any rate, Henry Frankenstein um also the entire kind of message behind frankenstein is this notion of creating life and this unnaturalness of trying to take away the power of creation from god and trying to pull it into the hands of man and to me there's a very queer aspect to that because of course queer people typically do not necessarily have their own biological children. And so this idea of moving the power of creation into the hands of man um, and removing sort of the the motherly natural aspect of creation um, seems to me to be relevant to this discussion, especially because what we then get from that is this creature who is incapable of fitting into human society, um, not through any fault of his own, but he's just consistently rejected by everyone who sees him. And ultimately, he gets kind of dragged down into this nature of, well, society rejects me, so I might as well reject them. And then even when he gets a bride, like he's supposed to do it the normal way and have the family that society says he should have that doesn't work. And so they all die. Exactly. He's trying so hard to fit into what society and what he sort of assumes to be the natural course of things. I mean, he's working so hard, you know, to the point of like murder and, you know, blackmail and all that good stuff. But no matter what he does, even when he literally creates a wife for himself, you know, she turns away from him and she says, no, I, well, she doesn't say anything, but she screams when she sees him, which, you know, um, not a good and, <laughs> and then he basically tells, um, Henry Frankenstein guy and his cousin wife lady to leave the building And then he pulls the lever and that does something presumably scientific that makes the building blow up. Um, And he says something, and I'm trying to remember what the exact line is, but it's something 
thing like we belong dead referring to himself dr pretorius and the bride yeah um which i i just this okay. was a very a very strange movie but i did find that bit very compelling and interesting <laughs> that he felt that not only himself but also dr pretorius for trying to circumvent the natural order of things was unnatural and belonged dead if you don't fit the mold you should at least try to find the proper family and if you can't do that then you might as well be dead Mm -hmm, exactly um i also believe i read on that article i sent you that the actor who played dr pretorius was bisexual um don't quote me on that but i think that's what i remember seeing um and i just i think that also lends an interesting sort of lens to this that the person who was you know sort of the villain who was um trying to circumvent nature again was also in real life bisexual when i was watching i was like the only thing i can come up with is this guy seems like he might be gay i mean exactly (laughs) though because he like not to be like relying on stereotypes but that queerness is sort of coming through in his character probably again because directors are like ooh queer vibes that's spooky right like (laughs) his queerness becomes an aspect of what makes him an unsettling character to audiences in the 30s okay moving forward to 1959 the haunting of hill house which was based on a book by shirley jackson what do you want to say about that one this one is interesting um it isn't So the character who is very clearly intended to be queer is is Theo, who is one of the people who comes to Hill House to basically research the potential paranormal manifestations, and she is a psychic. How her abilities work is never really clearly explained, but she takes on this sort of simultaneously like friendship role with the main character Nell and simultaneously is kind of antagonistic it's very strange their relationship i remember that cuz they're they're both there for part of the experiment that this researcher is doing right wants mm-hmm. to find out like what's happening in the house and yeah. they were in rooms next door to each other something like that yeah yeah and so they're i remember them both like sort of trying to find comfort when they were scared but also nell having this like weird aversion to theo she says something like i know what you are right yeah something like i know what you are i know what you have done um you're unnatural or something like that like there's this one there's this one particular scene where i was like um that was the like gayest thing i have ever seen in a movie from the 60s or 59 um because it was just like so clearly intended to be referencing you know theo being queer um and interestingly i was looking this up later on and it turns out that um 
that was, you know, the film creator's intention. And there was actually a deleted scene that didn't make it into the final cut that involved um, Theo basically uh, breaking up with a girlfriend um, at the very beginning. Uh, So, you know, it's, if you watch this, you will, you will understand what we mean when we say it is so very clear. (laughs) It was definitely the least subtle of these old movies. Like we weren't having to read anything into it. It was pretty obvious, right? Yeah. And I was a little bit surprised because I felt like that wasn't something that you see portrayed obviously in older movies like that. I guess the reason that it's part of this conversation isn't so much the um, finding the hidden queer message within it, but just the way the queerness was portrayed. Like my impression was that Nell was more willing to be destroyed by the house than be saved by a lesbian. Yeah. And, you know, I think we get once again, bringing up Carmilla, um, I, I thought that their relationship was very similar to um, the the main character's relationship with the vampire in Carmilla, um, which was sort of this one of, I am drawn to you and I want to be near you and I find you fast. And yet I'm simultaneously repulsed by you. Um, and like she swung just wildly back and forth between those two throughout the movie in a way that I didn't think made very much sense. It was just really interesting um, how how Theo sort of was this very interesting, clearly queer-coded character, and then just sort of got set to the side um, because Nell was like, no, I want to I get destroyed by the house, I guess. <laughs> it's interesting because like with Nell's aversion to her, it's almost like she was one of the horrors of the house. And yet, ultimately she was sort of a lifeline, but a lifeline that Nell rejected. Yeah. And I mean, when you think about it, like, you know, Theo is also like, it makes sense that she would be perceived as one of the horrors of the house because she is the only one of the, the, I think it's four, four main characters that is quite literally unnatural. Like she literally has supernatural abilities. So it makes sense that you're like, you know, she, she is, literally not the same as the rest of us so what do you think the um the purpose was of that you know i genuinely don't know i could do more reading on the what the filmmakers have said because like i said you know i did a little bit of reading and like making her a lesbian was definitely intentional but i don't know what the point of making her like putting her in that role was um and you probably have to go back to the book and look at you know look at that look at how what Theo's role in the book was and how different the queer coding in that is from the uh from in the film um because it could be that the film was just sort of going along with what they saw in the book or maybe expanding upon what they saw in the book or they just thought let's just add something new in for fun um, but I, I just, yeah, I feel like I, you, you, you kind of need that piece of the puzzle maybe. Yeah. Well, it's in my stack of books to read. So we might have to circle back to that after I read it. 
Or if anybody out there wants to watch a movie, watch the movie or has read the book and wants to take a stab at it, let us know. Absolutely. All right. So that concludes the first part of our discussion in queer coding in horror movies. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Two weeks from now, we'll be releasing part two of this discussion uh, in which we're going to talk about some really wild movies from the 60s and 80s. So uh, tune in for that because it's going to be very interesting. Keep talking. Keep listening. Be kind. And we'll catch you next time. If you'd like to see more from us, please consider following us on Instagram and Facebook at QueerKid.StraightMom, Twitter at QueerKidStraightMom, that's straight with an eight. And if you are have anything that you would like us to talk about on one of our next episodes, um, any questions or topics you'd like covered, please feel free to leave a comment on any of those social media pages. If you would like to help us help support us, you can rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you would really like to help us out, we have a Patreon under Queer Kids Straight Mom. Thanks so much.